Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to open up your Bibles to Song of Songs. I would encourage you to open up your Bibles to Song of Songs, chapter 3. Tonight we're going to be taking a look at verses 1 through 5, 1 through 5 in Song of Songs. Remember, to find Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, one goes to the Psalms and then turns right and continues on until you bump into it. Um, just to remind us, uh, before, we, uh, before we get started here, we, uh, we pray, there are, of course, two differing uh, but complementary applications of the Song of Solomon. The first is that it's an idealized love song between the Shulamite and Solomon. Um, and as we, we consider it in that uh, mode, we can learn a lot about love between a husband and a wife in the covenant community. But it's also about the love between the believer and Christ, uh, with the beloved Solomon representing Christ, uh, the bridegroom and the Shulamite uh, representing the church, uh, his bride. And we see that analogy spelled out by Paul in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. I'm going to go ahead and read that after I pray. Before I actually pray, uh, read the, um, the section in Song of Solomon that I'm going to be preaching on. But uh, let's go before the Lord and ask him to sharpen our minds, fix our attention upon his word. God, our Father, I pray that you would be with us tonight and that you would help me in particular to preach your word, to open this up. Lord, this song, the song of songs, the greatest of songs, was put in scripture for a reason was not merely put here to amuse us, but it was put to edify us and to show us, O oh Lord, the depth of our, our commitment, not only to our loved ones here on earth, our husband or our wife, depending on what you give us, but Lord, it also uh, should show us the depth of commitment we should have to Christ. And I pray, Lord, that that would resonate tonight. Help us, O oh Lord, to read, to understand, and then to apply. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to be reading, as I said, from Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to be starting with verse 22. There Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, you'll remember that uh, Paul... In Ephesians, we just went through Ephesians in the evening, uh, he has addressed all the members of the household in this portion of Ephesians. He's given them specific instructions. He's spoken of father, to fathers, to mothers, to children, to servants. Uh, but in addressing husbands and wives, he tells them that their relationship is very special. Their relationship is supposed to both point to and be modeled on the communion between Christ and the church. And the song works the same way. So as we read it, 
always keep both analogies in view, both reference points, and that hopefully will help us to understand uh, it better and to apply it in our own lives. So I, I do want to now read from Song of Solomon and chapter 3. If you'll turn there, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 5. The Shulamite, by night on my bed I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city and the streets and in the squares. I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me. I said, have you seen the one I love? Scarcely had I passed by them when I found the one I love. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Uh, One of my favorite movies, and I think one of the best movies ever made, that's my personal opinion, is The Princess Bride. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have seen The Princess Bride? Okay, only a few hands have not been raised, but because there are a few who have not yet seen it, I I will give you some background. Uh, Those of you who who have seen it will remember that the center of the movie is the true love between Buttercup and Wesley, and the relentless search of Wesley for Buttercup after they are parted. He is destined, he is absolutely set on finding and marrying his true love, Buttercup, but throughout the movie, he has to go through the most ridiculous perils in order to find her. He must hazard all in order to get his Buttercup. No obstacle is too great for Wesley, and he is willing to do anything to make her his. Uh, Now, this is something that we used to understand, I think, but being in love is not a day job. It is not something that we do for a little while and then and set aside. One, one is constantly absorbed in love when it is true love between two people. Uh, one thinks about the loved one day and night. It is all absorbing. The beloved is never far from your thoughts. Those of you who have been in love will remember that experience. And it is, if it is true love, you'll stop at nothing until you have the object of your desire, until all is consummated, all that you wanted is brought to pass. Now, before, you remember as we've been going through the the Song of Solomon, we see that there, there is this true love that has budded between the Shulamite and Solomon, the beloved. And not only that, but we know that Solomon reveals that he loved her first. He saw her from afar, and he desired to make her his. But... We also saw how the Shulamite in the last chapter had said when he came calling, you remember he said, come, my love, uh, it's, it's the time for love, it's time for, for marriage and for consummation. She had said, not yet. The marriage day was fast approaching, but not yet there. Um, and, and so she did not want to speed things up beyond where they should be. Now, this is a lesson for us. Uh, it, it's very hard for those in love who are approaching marriage to keep the proper boundaries there. Those of you who have been in that experience will understand exactly what I am talking about. You think, oh, it's, it's so near. What does it matter if we, we drop all the safeguards that we've had in place up until this point? 
And if you think like that, unfortunately, you will find yourself in trouble. I have unfortunately counseled people who have had the honeymoon before the wedding. And it, uh, it, it was something that made them very, very sad, ultimately. Do not allow that to happen to you. But she has said, not yet. It is not yet time uh, for these things to take pl- place. But now we see her anxious. Uh, going through her head is this, what if, what if I lose him? What if he can't be found? And she has, uh, therefore, in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, what I strongly believe is a recurring dream. I don't believe that this is something that actually happened. Now, why do I believe it's a recurring dream? Well, uh, two, two reasons. First, the Hebrew for when it says, by night on my bed I sought the one I love, by night there is actually plural. And a better translation would be the one that's offered by the New American Standard which is on my bed night after night I sought him whom my soul loves I sought him but did not find him there's just this constant reoccurring dream that she has I'm seeking after him I cannot find him secondly the second reason why I think it's a dream and rather not something that happened for a woman to wander alone through the open spaces of the largest city in Judah at night would have been extremely dangerous to put it mildly Uh, You'll remember that this is taking place in the age of what SpongeBob so wisely called advanced dark. It is, there is no light whatsoever. There are no street lights, no, uh, no outside illumination. In order to illuminate your household at this point, you had olive oil lamps that didn't really shed uh, much light at all. People, as a result, arose with the dawn and they went to bed a little uh, after nightfall. And there were generally, therefore, only four classes of person who were about on the streets at night in a city like Jerusalem. The first would be thieves, people who were looking to to either rob people who were still out on the street uh, or break into houses, steal things from shops, things like that. Then there were drunks. They would have been a target for the thieves as well. These are the men who unfortunately stayed up late mixing wine and partying and so on. These were generally the wastrels of the city. And then there were the prostitutes who also preyed on the uh, the drunks. And then finally there were the law enforcement officers of the ancient world, the night watchmen. These were the men who went about armed at night. Uh, They would go about the city and their cry at uh, uh, at each hour. Uh, In England, for instance, it was, Two o'clock and all's well! And by doing that, what they were doing was alerting all the other watchmen that my post, uh, there's nothing going on here. Another thing that the watchmen did, incidentally, and this is just a a historical thing, is they they watched for fires uh, to make sure that they did not spread. If a fire started at night, it could consume the entire city before people were aware of it. So they went about as fire watch. But uh, they were looking for people who were up to no good to uh, stop them from their nefarious activities. Now, she, she meets these watchmen, and she asks them, have you seen my beloved? Have you seen uh, Solomon? In reality, uh, they either would have either concluded she was a, a woman of the night, or they would have taken her back to her home if they thought she was an unwed maiden wandering around the city late at night. It's not safe uh, for you to be out here. They would have done that. Uh, but in the dream, they simply tell her, no, we don't know. We haven't seen her. It's, you, know, you, know, you ever notice that in, in dreams, there, there's just these odd behaviors that n- would never happen in, in real life? And this is one of them. Uh, it serves a purpose. We can't find him. Uh, and it, it reflects her anxiety. But she doesn't give up the search, though. 
Uh, and there is a romantic and an eternal application of this. And it should be obvious to you. I hope it is. Like Wesley, we must not stop searching for our true love. And that is particularly true of the search for communion with Christ that the Christian should have. Your relationship to Christ should be the deepest, most true, most fundamental thing in your life. It should be something that is constantly on your mind. Jesus should be the burning, fiery sun at the center of your particular being. He should be the solar system, or the center of, rather, your solar system, and you should rotate around him. If Jesus is merely something you've thrown into orbit around you and occasionally you pay attention to it, once in a while, that's not the love that should exist between the believer and Christ. The love that should exist between the believer and Christ is something so constant that you could not do without him. You could not be separated from his body, the church. You literally would feel angst. You would feel that that things are not right if you could not worship with his saints, if you could not pray, uh, if you could not come into his presence on a regular basis and enjoy uh, the preaching of his word. It It should be something that if... The state tells you you can no longer do this. You can't worship with with people. You can't tell people about Christ. You can't have his word. That you would say, no, I must. And you you would break those laws because they are unjust laws. And you would do those things. You would meet with believers secretly. You would search out the word wherever you could find it. And you would be willing even to suffer for the sake of that relationship. We are told we must seek the Lord. Again and again in Scripture, you saw that in the opening psalm, I hope. But it's not just in the psalms, but in Deuteronomy 4.29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. That is something that the Lord tells his people. He says, if you seek me with your heart, if you're truly seeking after me, you will find me. I will make myself known to you. I will close with you. Matthew 7, 7 and 8, the words of Christ, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now the word of faith, guys, grossly abuse that. You know, well, if you're praying and you're asking for the, the Corvette, you'll get the Corvette if you pray in faith. Oh, and it'll help if you give us $20,000 in our ministry, you know. Couldn't I just buy the Corvette that way? Well, no, the, uh, it's not about seeking after the things of this world. What Christ is speaking about there is that if we seek after him in prayer, if we pray in his name, we will gain those things. That will be given to us. Jesus is readily available to all who truly seek after him. Anyone who has come to him in faith has never been turned away. But note the way that she is searching after him. This is the way we should be searching after him. Spurgeon notes on this verse, with what constancy she sought this communion. She began at dead of night, as indeed it is never too late to seek renewed fellowship, yet she sought on. The streets were lonely, and it was a strange place for a woman to be at such a strange time, but she was too earnest in seeking to be abashed by such circumstances. The watchmen met her, and they were astonished, as well they might be, how she came to be there at that hour. But she sought on. She would never rest until she found him. Now, there's an application there for our human relationships as well. There should be a a seeking modeled in them. 
but primarily I want to apply this, and I, I will touch on that. Uh, it should be the case that we desire that intimacy with God as much as the Shulamite desired it. It shouldn't be the case that we should be uh, okay with an acquaintance with Jesus. Yeah, we're friends. We talk from time to time. That, that's not the way it should be with Christ. This is a bride-bridegroom relationship. You're not roomies. You're not you know, on the same team. There's nothing like that. This is the most intimate relationship possible between the believer and the Savior. And if you're not feeling that, then something's out of, out of whack. Something is wrong. Well, eventually, after much effort, she found him, and she finds him, and she holds on to him, and then it tells us she brings him home to her mother. Uh, The mother's house is is simply where unmarried young women would live, Um, and this desire for him to be brought home to be uh, announced to the family is is worth noting. Now, notice this. She says she brought him into the chamber of her mother. She does not say, I brought him into my chamber, which would be, you know, um, a little uh, racy. Um, And uh, before marriage, obviously something that is not supposed to be happening. But what is the analogy, therefore, for the mother's house for the Christian? Well, most of the commentators uh, say it, it serves two, two different purposes. One, it represents our households as believers. And secondly, it does represent the church, which is the mother of our souls, the alma mater. Uh, mater, yes, that's the way to pronounce it. Um, the human family is being thought of here as well. Matthew Henry says it well. He says, how desires she was to make others acquainted with him. I brought him to my mother's house that all my relations, all who are dear to me, might have the benefit of communion with him. When Zacchaeus found Christ, or rather was found of him, salvation came to his house. Wherever we find Christ, we must take him home with us to our houses, especially to our hearts. The church is our mother, and we should be concerned for her interests, that she may have Christ present with her, and be earnest in prayer for his presence with his people and ministers, always. Those that enjoy the tokens of Christ's favor to their own souls should, be, uh, should desire that the church and all religious assemblies in their public capacity might likewise enjoy the tokens of his favor. You should be bringing Christ with you wherever you go. When you go to your home, uh, one of the first things, I, we didn't do a good job, like most new converts. Uh, we, uh, that is when my wife and I found Christ, the first thing that we started doing was sharing the, the good news with our relatives. Now, we, we shared it rather over the top and a little too aggressively, and, uh, and, and definitely they, they did not appreciate uh, the way it happened, but this was something needful. And it should be the case that you should never be ashamed of your loved one, right? You should never be ashamed of Christ. You should be often speaking of them. When two people are in love, you, you can't get them to shut up talking about each other. Neither should you want to. You know, that's the desire of their hearts. They're always thinking of them, always talking about them. And so too for the Christian, it should be the case that you're always thinking about him, always talking about him. It's just impossible for you to leave him at home when you go to work. It's impossible for you to not burden the relatives with, with your love and your joy. Now, there is also an application that's, that's the heavenly application, obviously, in our relationship with Christ, but there's also a, a real-world application. It should be the case that any relationship that we have with someone is something that we would desire to, to share with our family, both with the church 
and with our, our, our mothers and our fathers. Indeed, uh, it is necessary that uh, we have that approval from our parents, from our family. When we get married to somebody, it should not be the case that when our, our parents have, if our parents are Christians, they've experienced or expressed rather dire uh, difficulties in accepting this person, that we're okay with that. And it certainly shouldn't be the case that you simply bring them home for the first time and say, this is my husband, this is my wife. Who? We don't know this person. What, what, what happened there? The, uh, the idea of not having introduced your loved one to your loved ones, especially in this context, obviously, when this was written, was just unspeakable or unthinkable. Um, but one thing, parents do not unduly turn aside uh, the choice of your, your daughter or your son. There are far too many parents, unfortunately, who have in the past set the bar way too high for their children's loved one. They have determined that they will only accept somebody who is absolutely on every single measure, by every single measure, above average, absolutely across the, the board. They want somebody who's a theological, well, I wanted somebody who was a theological dynamo, you know, the kind of guy I could, I could sit down with and engage at the table, and at the same time, you know, I, I, want him to be, uh, I want him to be so Presbyterian, I want him to be so Reformed, I want him to be, you know, all of these things. And I want him to be a great provider, uh, I want him to have a skill set that far exceeds mine, and so on. It reminds me, actually, the way that I, I put it, of, uh, there was a Monty Python sketch. I can't believe I'm using the Princess Bride and Monty Python in one, one sermon. But it was a king, and uh, his, his princess, his, his daughter, was constantly bringing home you know, these, these uh, princes who were good enough, and he would set an impossible task for them. You know, go and fight the dragon of Endor, you know, and slay him by yourself. And, of course, they would get eaten by the dragon, or he would say, go and leap from the highest window of the highest tower in the castle if you love my daughter and want to marry her. And so all of these guys, one by one, would die. So finally she brings home this shabby-looking guy smoking and holding a goat on a leash. And, and uh, he says, go and slay him. She says, daddy. <laughs> he says, all right, go to the corner shop and get me a packet of fags, which is cigarettes. He says, do I have to? And uh, she says, please. And he says, all right. A few minutes later, he brings him the cigarettes, and that's her husband. Now, believe it or not, I have seen a real-world application to this. Okay? It, was, it was something that was evident in the life, for instance, of Queen Elizabeth. She turned away suitors left and right, left and right, until finally the suitors weren't coming to her anymore. Importune me no more. And they stopped importuning her. And she found herself without a husband. That can happen. Parents, we can set the bar so high that eventually our kids just go off and, and choose somebody who is well below the Christian standard, who may not even be a Christian. So be judicious in that. If this truly is their love, and if this person is a Christian, then, well, perhaps they are not perfect in all ways but perhaps they are what the Lord intended for your child in the first place. So beware of setting the bar unreasonably high and making it impossible or much too difficult for your kids to get married. Now, I want to give you uh, one main application, and it's this. Uh, the search for true love is not for the faint of hearts or the lazy, especially when it comes to, to Christ, but also 
for human marriage. One of the reasons why marriage is collapsing in our society is our unwillingness these days to labor for true love, particularly amongst young men. They don't want to do anything in order to plight their troth, in order to pursue uh, the woman. They don't even feel that they should have to pursue them. If it's more difficult than swiping left or swiping right, it's too hard. I'm not going to bother. And they want the they want the things that you get in marriage without the responsibilities of marriage or even the commitment of marriage. I've spoken to far too many young men in that particular situation. They just don't want to, to get up and do that which is necessary. And there are, as a result, I have spoken to a lot of Christian young women who are wondering, where is my Wesley? Where is the young man who is going to pursue me, who desires me in the way that Wesley wanted Buttercup, or in the way that the believer should desire Christ analogously? Not in an idolatrous sense, thinking that she is going to be his goddess. You, you should not obviously do that with your spouse. I've seen Christians do that. They, they put their spouse in the place of God, or they force Jesus to share space with uh, that person, and that becomes an idol. And unfortunately, the Lord smashes idols. Don't do that. It does not produce good results. But it should be the case that young men pursue the woman that they want and that that woman should be pursuing Christ. So they must pursue Christ as well if they are to have her. It should be something that requires effort. As I said, uh, unfortunately, one of the reasons why we've seen such a growth of, of homosexuality in our society is because it's narcissistic. It doesn't require much change on our part. It doesn't require much pursuit. It's, it's sex-based. It's a desire for that which is entirely like me, that which is easy. It's the, it is the lowest of the low-hanging fruit, uh, to put it quite frankly. And that is, is wrong. And as a result, we've seen uh, the, the problem of unmarriedness skyrocketing. There are more adults in the United States now over the age of 40 who have never been married than ever before. There are also more adults living in their parents' houses. And keep in mind, think back, you know, the pioneer days and so on where families lived in the same house and, and so on. There are more kids living, adult children living in their parents' house than ever before in American history. This is not a good thing. And why? Well, because it's just not worth the effort. We, we don't want to exert the effort to, to bridge the gap between us and our spouse. And it is difficult because one, I mean, marriage here on earth is the union of two sinners for life. And it's two different people. Men and women are not alike. It requires a dying to self. And in order for it to go on properly, it requires a shared ambition to establish the kingdom of God in your household. It's hard. It's not just, and this is the thing about the Princess Bride, Wesley gets buttercup, and oh, it's perfect from that point onwards. You know, the movie ends, they all ride off, and, and so on. Actually, that's where the hard work really begins. And if you end the pursuit there, you're in trouble. Now, I, I speak as somebody who pursued my wife for nine years. It was the, the longest adventure I was ever on. And uh, she more than once said, importune me no more. But I wasn't having it. I, I had set my, my, my heart on this woman and I was, I was determined, no matter what, to continue after her. But here is a terrible confession of sin. 
uh, that I'm about to make before you. When I came to Fayetteville, I set my heart on building a church. I knew that that was my ministry, but I began to, to neglect my wife, to no longer pursue after her, to no longer let her know that she was the buttercup to my Wesley, and so on. I became lazy in, in my pursuit of the beloved. And bizarrely enough, I also started getting lazy in my pursuit of Christ. I was pursuing the things of the church all the time, but my own devotions were falling apart. My own piety was growing less and less. Now, by God's grace, he gave me a partner. A, that's an awful word, isn't it, for your wife? Not my partner. He, he gave me a helpmeet. He gave me flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones, who was willing to come to me and say, hey, <laughs> dummy, you are, she didn't say dummy, um, but you're making some serious mistakes here. And it's affecting me, it's affecting your family, and it's affecting you. You need to stop. And so it was a, it was a wake-up call. Find you a woman who's willing to do that, incidentally, who's willing to, to tell you the truth, even when it's hard, and who will stir up you know, the currents in order to uh, create even create trouble uh, within the marriage in order to solve the problems rather than simply plastering over them and saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. It should be the case, though, going back to the, the higher analogy, that every Christian is seeking, as I said, after communion with Christ. We should have that unsettled feeling when he's not near. We should have a willingness to risk everything. And uh, the certainty that if we search for him, it is because he has called us to him. To know, therefore, that if we seek him, we will find him, because he's already set that desire in our heart. In 1 John, uh, John 4.19, we remember that we're told we love him because he first loved us. Our love to Christ is a response of his love to us. And then John 6.37, if you'll turn there, I want you to heed these words. They're so very important about coming to Christ, seeking after him. In John 6.37, we read this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. Here we have the assurance that if we have come to Christ, it's because the Father has given us to him. He is the one who has appointed us to be the bride for his bridegroom. And he has given us his assurance that while marriages, unfortunately, may fall apart in the world, the marriage between the believer and Christ never does. He will raise us up at the last day. Charlie, uh, sorry, Elder King put it uh, in, in the simplest of terms, uh, once saved, always saved. I, I admit that's a great truth. I prefer the, the terms, though, perseverance of the saints. Who is it who perseveres us, though? Who causes us? Or the preservation of the saints is how R.C. Sproul put it. The Lord preserves those who are his. 
It's why, for instance, Peter returned to him after betraying him. But I have prayed for you, says Jesus to him. And when you return, strengthen the brethren. Jesus, who loved you, will never, ever let you go. If once he has put that love for him in your heart, not only will you seek him and find him, but there will be that relationship that not only goes on for your life, but continues on into eternity. It is absolutely indissoluble. It cannot be broken. It cannot be put asunder because the Lord is the author of it. Seek that relationship that goes on forever, therefore, and you will never lose it. Let's go before the Lord. God, our gracious Father, we thank you so much for the gospel assurances that you give us, for the analogy in this idealized courtship and then marriage, Lord. We see a picture of your love for us that began with you in eternity past. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have set your, your sights on us, that you, oh, Lord, have caused us to seek you. And we pray, oh, Lord, that we would do that, that we would seek you. We do pray also, Lord, that we would love uh, the one that you have appointed for us with our whole hearts and that we would seek them as the second most important thing in this world to us and not grow slack. I do pray, Lord, that you would help those who are seeking that, that beloved here on earth. But I know everyone here has a beloved above who is absolutely always going to accept them if they come to him in faith. And that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May it be that they close with him and know the joy of salvation that only he can bring. We pray this in Jesus' holy